The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. With our guest, Bill Connerly. Bill Connerly is our first time, second full recipient of a to be on the guest. So thank you, Bill, for being on this. I'm going to share your your bio here because I think it's worth sharing again. A senior contributor to Forbes. You regularly have articles on there. A Duke University PhD and a consultant who connects connects the dots between economy and business. He also has a wonderful business letter. If you haven't signed up that before in the past, I highly recommend. I love getting his, his work. He works in economics. He's worked in economics and corporate planning at two Fortune 500 corporations and in a major bank where he was a senior VP. A company used Dr. Connerly expertise to help with decisions regarding capital expenditures, inventory levels, expanding into new markets, pricing, business models, and financial structure. He has spoken to over 1,300 business audiences in five countries and 31 states when it does not compete with his sailing, as we've <laughs> talked about. He's also has many articles at Forbes.com. He's the author of The Flexible Stance. And a thriving in a boom and bust economy, which is right behind me to my right. And then also Biznomics. He's been interviewed on PBS, CNN, CNBC. He's regularly quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, USA Today. Bill, welcome again back to the Measure Sex podcast. Great to see you, Carl. Well, we, there has been, last time we talked, it was uh, roughly September, October. We released this in October of last year, 2021. All right, so we're going to go through some of the things that just how much things have changed. The 30-year mortgage was near 33%. Right. Home appreciation was nearly at 20% levels. Yeah. CPI was roughly going up to 5% at that point. Stock market went up and down. Interestingly enough, it's only 4 to 5% difference than it was, but it feels like it's gone all over the place since that period of time. And, it, and at that time, GDT was expected And one of your key headlines was COVID. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, where are the COVID numbers now? Are we on the fourth wave? You know, what's happening? So today, what had what has surprised you the most since kind of looking back at Q4 of last year when you were when you're thinking about the economy? What has surprised me the most? I was afraid you were going to go through a list of uh, forecasts I'd made a year ago and, and rub them in my face. You know, the, the thing that has surprised me the most is that the Federal Reserve now seems to get it. They now seem to believe that inflation is 
more than a transitory issue. And they seem committed to getting inflation back down. And I was skeptical about that. I think I first wrote about inflation being a problem, going to be a problem in about this time in 2020, two years ago. And I know I wrote an article in January of 2021 saying, hey, the inflation numbers are coming in low, but that's going to change. And I've been crying wolf. And then the wolf showed up and a number of people are saying, yeah, yeah, the Fed just doesn't get it. But I've been going through the statements of Federal Reserve officials, Jerome Powell and the like, and I think that they get it. And I think they're going to bring inflation down. So getting it, does that, what does that mean from an interest rate standpoint? Oh, well, we've been seeing higher interest rates, higher short-term interest rates. The long-term interest rates are not as directly affected by the Fed, but they're partially affected by the Fed as well as global, global demand for credit, global supply of savings. So I, I think we have more short-term interest rate increases coming. I think the economy will slow, and I think there's a fair chance that we go into recession late next year or perhaps early in 2024. But I had my biggest fear, and it's it's still a small fear. My biggest fear had been the Fed would uh, make a, an attempt to pull inflation down. They'd see some weakening job numbers, and then they would panic and say, oh, we cannot allow a recession to happen. And that is what happened all through the 1970s. And so it was pretty bad. I was on a, a call with a very distinguished economist who said, the people forecasting today, that they, they, they weren't forecasting in the high inflation era. And then he says, except for Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go back a long way and it's not always positive to be old, but but, you know, having gone through, been studying economics in the 70s, I started forecasting the economy in the early 80s. And that experience, I think, is very useful. It, it is true. There are very few people today that have, have experienced that and were working in it. I mean, one thing is living in it. Right. Right. You know, and remembering, you know, when gas prices were really high back then, there was lines and people waiting in line, but it's much different when you're actually were doing work and studying it and researching. And, and so this, this interesting balance you're talking about, right, of, of fighting inflation, but not being afraid of recession. Because like you said, I think one of the things you told me in a separate meeting is that your concern is if they don't do something, it's either going to drag on or we're going to have something even more significant, right? Yeah that happens down the road. So so this is where I get confused. And I know there's a lot of different measures on what things happen. I think if I read correctly, GDP was technically down for two consecutive quarters in Q1 and Q2. Right. I thought that was the definition for recession. It helped me out because you said we're going to have a recession. It hasn't. And I've heard people say we have, we had a recession. Help me out a little bit of why that's one indicator and why necessarily people aren't saying there's a recession. Let me answer the question and then tell you why I don't think it's a very useful question. <laughs> if you don't mind me. Yeah, uh, please, please. Yeah. So there is a formal process by a nonprofit body that to, to determine is it a recession or not. 
and it, a bunch of academics, and it's useful for later research. 30 years from now, somebody's going to be saying, hey, let's look at some variable and correlate it with recessions, and, and they'll use that. A, a rough rule of thumb has been two, two negative quarters for real GDP, but that's just a rough rule of thumb. And if we look at things like employment, production, actual incomes, even adjusted for inflation, business sales, it does not look like a recession. But now let me say, suppose I sat here and I said, I've gone through the numbers and I think that we were in a recession. What would you do differently in your business, Carl? Or what would you recommend your, your clients do differently in their businesses? Mm-hmm. So, so that's, so that's the great, right? So, so many times, and you know this all the time because of Bill, what you do is that often there's still a fear after something has already taken place. Yeah, you're right. Like yeah, it's right. like, it's going to happen again. Like, you know, the stock market already corrected significantly. Yeah. And interestingly enough, despite people thinking that market's going to still go the way down, it's now only 4% yeah. roughly down from it. Well, because I argue from its peak, still still down a bit, but from a year ago, it's only four to five percent down. Yeah, and 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 again, what are you going to do with your investments going forward? Correct. That's 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 the decision point. You know, you can agonize. Oh, was it a bear market? Did it actually go down to the twenty percent decline to be a bear market? Who the heck cares if you're making a decision about the future? So. We need to be looking forward, not not backward. Now, in, in one of your recent graphs in your letter, you, you've been saying that banks, though, have been expressing concern over recession yeah. and they have been tightening their lending. Their you know, credit standards, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. So what does that mean? What is that going to mean for, a, let's say, a business owner, right, who, who's yeah. looking to expand uh, business? So what, what do they do in that situation? That's a good question. What's going on, with banks, actually all the time this goes on, is they're tweaking their judgment about whether a particular company is credit worthy or not. And the evidence is they're tightening right now. So for a particular business, what I have encouraged businesses to do is understand where they sit relative to the credit worthy not credit worthy line. And it's actually not a thin line where you're obviously on it or not on it. It, It's a blurry area, but a business goes into a banker and the banker is going to look at the financials and the banker is going to say, yeah, we'd love to lend to you or no, no way. Or they'll say, maybe we need to understand you better, get to know you better, that kind of thing. And every business, whether they're using credit or not, should understand where they sit relative to the credit worthy line. And even if you're not using credit, it's worth knowing, hey, if we saw a good opportunity come by that would require a bank loan, would we be eligible for it? Mm. If they're using credit now, they should have an understanding of, are we right at the edge that the bank is going to start worrying? Mm. Or are we in such good shape the bank is not going to worry? And that's probably the most important lesson for businesses is knowing where they stand relative to their bank's credit standards. 
It was interesting. I was listening to Chapman University Economic Forecast, and they have the majority of his economic forecast in the very tail end. They talk about the stock market. And they said one of the things that they've been actively doing has been because they also have a investment portfolio as well that yeah. they help help guide with. And, and they said they've been actively shorting companies. Now, this is once again going back a little bit, but they've been actively yeah. shorting stocks with companies that had weak positioning, as you mentioned. But it had a lot of debt, yeah, right. Because the 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 one or two concerns were there. At a minimum, on the renewal of credit, their interest rates were going to be higher, which was going to be higher interest, right. And secondly, the risk of they might not be able to renew all that, yeah. So so that's a that's a drag in the economy right now, right? Because because money is more expensive than it once was, right. right? It's not as cheap. So an organ, like what you said, if we have a line of credit, let's just say we have some, let's say we have $5 million line of credit, for the business, we're drawing on that line, you know, and so we're three yeah. and a half, three, $3 million into that line of credit and we're just break even. Yeah. Right. So those, those companies are freaking out a little bit right now. Right? Yeah, they should be. Yeah. And so what should they be doing? So, so let's kind of go through that part. Let, let's do a perfect example, right? We have just that example. We have got somebody with a five million. We're just, this is purely hypothetical, by the way. I'm not, this is not sure. my any of my existing clients I'm talking about <laughs> right now. But let's say we have this. We have a five million dollar line of credit. We have a three million dollar draw. Their break even right now because of inflation has impacted their ability to to the cost. So they have not been able to pass along the the, the pricing. So their margins have gone down. And, and secondly, their labor costs have gone up to be able to maintain people from flighting to other organizations. Yeah. So in, in that specific circuit, and so basically they're break even, they're treading water from a, from a bottom line net income perspective. What, do you, what are you recommending or suggesting a company like that, once again, in rising interest rates? Yeah. What should they be doing? Well, I have found, and, I, and I'd like to hear your experience, but because you get into the financials of your clients more than I do, but I've been surprised at how many companies are not doing cash flow projections. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you walk in fresh and you have not been working with them, are they usually able to come up with an actual cash, not a P&L projection, but a cash flow forecast? This is a great question, Bill, that you're asking. So I would say this in general for most small businesses, and I'm talking about businesses that are 25 million and under, you know, sure. or, or yeah. maybe, yeah, well, well, I'll even say under 25 million, because that's the definition of a small business by the SBA. So I think it's a, it's a reasonable thing. Yeah. I would say most owners who have been with the business, CEOs have been with the business for a long time, they, they manage their checking account like they're, like they're, they know that well. Right. Right. They know how much cash is in the bank. Right. So, today. Know, today. And they kind of somewhat have a feel for what the future is going to look like. But what they really tend to lack understanding is the balance sheet. Hmm. They don't really under fully understand why AR is going up necessarily or yeah. why accounts payable is going through or is their turn like is, is something going on wrong? with like their collection points or their payment points that are taking place. And, and so I tend to see not, I rarely see sophisticated and not even that sophisticated, but just basic cash flow models because they, they will look at the, once again, the, the look at the, the checkbook 
yeah. for lack of a better term, but they won't look at the balance sheet. And that gets them into trouble often because their inventory, as an example, right? Yeah. Inventory is a balance sheet item. And, and, and when times are what's happening right now in inventory levels, they're, they're growing, right? And I'm just talking about a lot of retail right now, a lot right. of areas, right? Because the demand's not the same that it was because right. COVID money's gone. And so as a result of that, their inventories are going up, their lines are going up and their cash is getting tighter. Yeah. And so, so that's what's missing often in these models, Bill, that I see yeah. is they're not looking at the detailed, the, the balance sheet to understand how that model is going through. And as a result, they sometimes make decisions that are, that are actually very fixable, but they don't fix the right, they, they fix the wrong problem. You know, they, they, yeah. they, they, you know yeah. they do in a way that isn't necessarily the right way. And there's better ways to handle it. Yeah. And I was surprised coming out of the 2008 recession. So this would be like 2010, 11, 12, talking to businesses whose, whose orders were going up very quickly. It looked very good, but they had run out of cash. Mm-hmm. And they had not realized that they were going to have some cash out that had to happen immediately, like paying employees, some of their small suppliers needed to be paid promptly, but they were selling products to Fortune 500 companies that were going to pay in 90 days or 120 days. And on an accrual basis, they were making money hand over fist, but they were out of cash. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and something we were talking about earlier, one of, one of the challenges of a lot of business, and it's a, it's a wise business structure is the S corporation, especially for closely right. held corporations. Very wise for many different reasons to have that set up. You get the protection of a C corporation, but you get the appropriate, typically better tax situations of heading down that path if you have a reasonably profitable company. The the problem, right, is there's this tendency to, because you pay the taxes through personally, there's this tendency to pull all the money out of the company. Right. And then next thing you know, you no longer have any cash for that downturn. Right. Because yeah. that, it, you, you know, maybe they went to buy you a nice boat, build a race against you or something like that, you know, <laughs> you know? Right. okay, on, on Wednesday evenings down the Willamette. But but the, the problem, right, is, is that all of a sudden that's tied up that asset into something else. And not many business owners want to bring money back in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then they look to the bank to help them out. And as we talked about, we're sending the same dire situation not the breaking even, right? Bank is like wanting to tighten and they haven't made the right actions to actually improve the bottom line or improve cash flow. Right, right. And so coming back to the question you had asked a while back about what to do when the interest expense is going up and you know your costs are going up and your prices are, are not going up, some scenarios may might make sense in that case. Yeah. Like, you know, not just interest expense at today's interest rates, but you could ask, gee, what is the Fed itself projecting? You could come up with, a, ask a bunch of, look at the surveys of economists and say, well, who are the pessimists? And maybe not the, the most pessimists, but the sort of 95th percentile of pessimism. What do they see interest rates doing? And could we survive that? 
And I recommend something like that, like how bad could it be and can we survive? And rather than just what's our best guess. Yeah, I I think that's good insights. And 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 I think it is important to to just to do more than one scenario. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's important to have that that lower, you know, okay, what's the most likely? But then, but then to have that, okay, here's, here's our best case scenario that, that we think that may happen. We shouldn't be betting the farm on that though. Yeah. But then what is the actual worst case? And, and I think in many, the wise thing to do is to build to the worst case to make sure you get it. And then if things trigger properly, then you can make more investment decisions or other decisions based on you tracking in that right direction. Yeah. But, but doing nothing and just waiting is not a good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was chatting with a guy in the car sales industry, and in my presentation, I talked about recession contingency planning, you know, how to make sure you're going to survive it. And afterwards, the cocktail reception, maybe late in the cocktail reception, he said, I don't like to do that because that's negative thinking. Mm. And I don't want to get caught up in negative thinking. But I think believe that if you have your downside covered, you then can say, ah, what are the growth opportunities? I've got the downside covered. I don't, I'll, I'll just, you know, it's, it's a checklist item, downside covered, yes. And so long as that's the case, I'm going to focus on growth. And I was making the case that your growth attitude is a lot easier if you got your downside covered. I, I love that wanting to avoid the negative, right? You know, oh, yeah. that that, but it it's that's why the scenarios are important. We're, we're not saying it's yeah. going to happen, but let's look at what if it does happen. And and going back to that S corp, you know, scenario when when people owners have this tendency to pull everything out, it's so important to have cash in the bank. As two reasons, one is okay. What happens if your line gets pulled? Right, all of a sudden yeah. you lose that. But secondly to give you the actual cash reserve to handle a small downturn, maybe a month or two. But secondly, actually to even better, if you have even more cash, you could then look for opportunities in the marketplace. Perhaps okay. there's a competitor that has lost some employees like because they had a layoff, but there's some quality people where they're leaving because they're fearful and maybe you can poach them from another business. Right. That's where I think often people miss the reason why it's good to have some cash in there to actually sit in there, even if you'd pay taxes on it, right? Because it gives you an opportunity to breathe. To so what he missed was, is that owner sleeping at night by saying he just thinks positive? Right. Because when your money is drawn, you you, you have no more money and, and you are, your bank line is being called by your bank. You don't sleep very well. <laughs> you shouldn't at least <laughs> you shouldn't yeah exactly you shouldn't you shouldn't be sleeping very well and and i've, I've seen and been around businesses that have, have have experienced that and it's awful right it is a terrible situation when they don't think through the different scenarios what do you think might surprise well here let me let me ask a question about price increases yeah good i've seen in many cases businesses have not raised their prices enough they, they've thought they can eat it through efficiencies and they haven't been able to yeah. because once again, inventory is rising, prices are higher with labor. 
you know, even if, if there's somewhat of a what gas is a super expensive transportation cost, right? You have, fortunately, the shipping lanes have gotten a little less expensive for if you're bringing from Asia or from Europe, but it's still higher than it was. And, and if, for those organizations and companies that have not increased their prices, their margins have eroded significantly yeah. over the past period. So my question is this, they might be going, okay, so I got through whatever I have done. Do I have, and once again, I know this is a hard question to ask because there's different businesses. Do we foresee this inflationary environment increasing? And and is it still, quote unquote, safe to raise your prices in a perceived there's a recession coming? Well, the bottom line is, yeah, uh, I think more small businesses should be raising their prices, except if I'm a customer. <laughs> the to businesses you, the I go pricing. to, I don't want them to raise their prices. But you know, I, I had a discussion with a private equity investor. Wrote about it in Forbes a couple of years ago. A guy named Eric Krieger, and he said that when they buy a company, they often see three opportunities for improvement. And one of them, is, and and this was before this recent inflation period. He said they often have the ability to raise their prices. Their customers value what they do. Their customers are happy. And he said, in many cases, the product that the company is selling is a small part of the total cost of their customers in a business-to-business standpoint, and they've got the ability to raise prices. Now, when you start going in and saying, you know, you ought to raise your prices, the first thing that happens is the sales guy says, no, 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 we can't do that. We're going to lose everything. And, you know, so just consider that part of the DNA of salespeople to resist price increases. And and today it's even more so because all your customers are used to price increases. Costs are going up. Your competitors' costs are going up. Your competitors are worrying about the same thing. And, you know, there may be a company out there that's already priced so high that they should not be raising their prices. But I think a majority of companies should be raising their prices. Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I I can't say I've kicked the habit, but I'm certainly going to Starbucks less than I used to. But but I've noticed over the years, inflationary period or not, they were always increasing their prices. You know, like yeah. they, they always had this habit of like this nickeling diming, you know, yeah. over a period of time. And I think too many businesses forget they should be doing that too. Right. And it's much better to do regular small price increases than to hold the line, hold the line, and then suddenly say, okay, we've got to do a 20% or 10% price increase. Right. Uh, people will sort of ignore a couple of percent, but but they wake up when you hit them with a big price increase. So right. regular once or twice a year, smaller price increases makes a lot of sense. And the other strategy I've seen is surcharges for, yeah. for companies to use a temporary surcharge. Yeah. You know, they have a container shipment that used to cost $3,000 and it cost them $27,000. Yeah. You know, that that's a that was something that was not built into the price when they bought that initially. I mean, in some cases I've heard where the transportation costs cost more than the goods. Yeah. Um, I find that irritating personally, but I oh, haven't- super is. <laughs> I've not seen any research on it. You know, there were uh, fuel price increases in trucking and boy, 20 years ago, I've forgotten exactly when. And so a fuel surcharge was added 
And I was talking like three years after that became normal, some trucking executive said to me, our fuel surcharge revenue exceeds our total fuel expense. So fuel prices had gone up. They added a surcharge. Fuel prices went down. The surcharge stayed. And I'm like, why don't you just raise your prices? But I haven't have not seen, I scan, sort of read the summaries of a lot of research pieces, and I have not seen anything on whether a surcharge or a temporary thing is more palatable to customers. It, it'd be a good question for some PhD to study. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I'd be really interested to the research because I, I, some of my clients are doing it, and, and some people I've talked with out there and they are, are taking care of it. And it, if done appropriately, it's understood. Yeah. You know, there's like this, right. yeah, that's only fair. Like literally it's right. kind of like this. I, I'm not happy about it, but. Right. It's only fair. It's yeah. only fair. Right. Because I'm not going to go out of business right. if I yeah. pay that that increase. Yeah. And, you know, a sense of fairness is really important. And I'm kind of a dollars and cents cost benefits guy. But I have to admit, if people feel that they're treated unfairly, the dollars and cents don't make a difference. That's yeah. correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you, if you, you, if yep. you can do something and your customer says it's only fair, you've done it wrong. So, Bill, I know, I think, I think I one time heard my favorite economist is the one arm economist. So they can't say one hand and the other. But, but looking at using the crystal ball a little yep. bit, you know, let, let's go to something a little bit more personal that maybe many of the audience members will have or are thinking of doing. Mortgage rates are now five and a half, six percent, you know, depending on where you are, locale or what type of home yeah. you're buying, what type of length compared to three, right? So things feel a lot more expensive. And then people are like, well, should I buy or sell right now? What is happening now in reality and, and what trends you expect to see in the future in, in buying a home, selling a home, that area? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, I love economics because it's complicated, it's multi-causal, and I like complicated things and trying to understand them. When we had about six months into the pandemic, home prices started rising, and we assumed people were leaving apartments for and going buying a house. Maybe it was the first time home buyer looking at low mortgage rates saying, hey, we can afford it earlier than we had thought. Or maybe it was an apartment dweller who said, I want more space and being close into the office doesn't make much sense if I'm not going into the office. So home prices went up. And then a year later, apartment prices started going up. Apartment rents started going up while home prices were still going up. And I'm like, wait a second, how do you get prices for both homes and houses and apartments going up when our population growth is very, very low. How do you get more demand for all kinds? And what happened was people were living without roommates. Young people moving out of the parents' basements because they had stimulus money, they had gotten raises, those who had jobs, people who were sharing apartments, ditched the roommates because they had the money. And so we've been over the last couple of years seeing both kinds of housing costs go up. And now inflation for goods and services is rising faster than wages are going up. 
And the cost of either buying a house or renting an apartment is hugely higher than it had been two years ago. I think we'll see flat to declining home prices. I think rents are going to go down. And what's going to trigger this is people saying, dang, we cannot move from the apartment to the house at today's mortgage rates and home prices. And for the renters, I guess I do need a roommate after all. Even if I don't like roommates, I've got to fill up my car. I've got to buy food. So I think we have hit like the, 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 the peak for housing costs. Whether they go down sharply or just level off depends on the particular geography. You know, some cities will see price declines. Others will probably just see a leveling off. But it's, I think the boom is over. Yeah, it's interesting. My oldest daughter just left the house and did the exact same, had to find two roommates. And and they were able to fortunately actually find a rental house where they they were able to get into. But, you know, frankly, without a friend's, you know, she's on a teacher salary, it would have been very, very difficult, right? You know, to, yeah. to find a place in a, in a reasonably safe area, you know, where they can actually feel comfortable with that. Okay. So the but, thing but, that- May I add so one more thing? Yeah, please, please. Because yeah. I've, I've been counseling one of my sons on home purchase <laughs> and the, the fundamental rule on buying a house, I believe, is if you find a house you like at a price you can afford, go ahead and buy it. And don't try to predict, is this the best time to be buying it in terms of the home price or the mortgage rate? Those things are too hard to predict. If it's the right house at a price you can afford, go ahead and buy it. That's great advice. I really think that's great advice. You know, and 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 I looking back at the few, you know, the few purchases I've made over my career. And, and if you don't have a short time horizon too. Right. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. I'm you know, assuming you'd be staying in five years or so. Right. If you're that five-year period, right? And you're planning to be for a while and assuming the 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 industry in your town doesn't leave, right? yeah. you know, they don't go away. Yeah. That's why, okay, this is something that gets people every day. And and and, and if I, I saw an interesting data point that you're probably well aware of that, that people tend to switch and make decisions of the election based on the price of the pump. Oh, and yeah. It's one of the biggest indicators of a shift in, in a house and midterm elections is yeah. the price of the pump. I'm not a big fan of $5 gas, you know, per, per are we going to see $3 gas again anytime soon? I mean, it, it, what, what is that? I mean, I know that's a tough one, but yeah, it, it's interesting. I, 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 I've been surprised by how gas has gone up, but obviously there's been a lot of macroeconomic issues. There's been the crisis in Ukraine that's been taking place, which has put also a, a change in the way things have happened. What do you see? Or what are, what are the longer term range yeah. forecasting? And are we going to see below $3 gas? Because I loved it when it was down there. I think you will see gas below $3 if you eat properly, get plenty of exercise, monitor your blood pressure and your cholesterol. Because you have to live a few years, a few more years okay. to, to see that. There are two things going on. One is the Ukraine-Russia war. I, you know, Who knows what's going to happen there? But that definitely pushed oil prices up 20 bucks. But they were going up before That's right. the war. 
That's right. Significantly. And this is a lesson that you can apply to many other capital intensive businesses. A capital intensive business tends to be very cyclical, up and down, up and down, because when demand is starting to exceed supply, it takes years to bring new capital online. So if you want more oil and you're starting with the looking at the geology and trying to figure out where the deposits are, drilling exploratory wells, and then when something hits the production wells and the whole system, that's 10 years. Same thing with paper. You know, if, if it's like high demand for paper, a new paper mill takes several years to build and bring up to speed. So these capital intensive industries, airlines, a similar one, takes a long time to build up capacity. And in the and during that period, prices go up. And then when we get the capacity, if there's any weakness, well, most of their costs are not variable costs. Most of their costs are their fixed capital costs. So prices go way, way down. So uh, we're going to see variability in those prices. I think that the variability will be on the sort of high price side for oil and gasoline. But, you know, maybe it's three years, maybe it's 10 years. But at some point, we're going to see the prices hit, hit sub $3. Thank you. Now, all right. So we, we've got just met one more minute here left, Bill. What question didn't I ask you? I, I should have asked you, or you want to let the audience know about just in general about the economy or anything else? Yeah, I think that the most important lesson I've seen by talking to business people about the economy is try to focus on what's relevant to your business rather than the nonsense going off in, on in Washington, D.C. or the state capital. Focus on, hey, what does it mean for my business? Kind of coming back to the, if, if you knew it was a recession, you know, in, in the first half of this year, what would you be doing differently now? That's right. That's right. I, I love that. You know, once again, focus on what you can control right? That's going to have the biggest impact. We talk about that all the time, strategic plan and execution, focus on your leading indicators that you have control over that you could have an impact in the outcome. And, and that's again, the greatest results. Bill, how can people reach out to learn more about you? Bill Connerly, Google me and Google is really good about finding me. I have my book, The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom-Bust Economy, which is I think more relevant now than when it you know, came out a couple of years ago. And I do my monthly newsletter. And again, just Google me, find my website. The newsletter is a 60 second update on the economics that business leaders need to know. Okay. Bill, it's been a pleasure once again to have you on the Measures podcast. Great chatting with you always, Carl. Absolutely. And to everyone else listening, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.